This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. In the upper room, our Lord said in John 14, 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And we ask the question, what could be greater works than the great miracles that Jesus did in the four Gospels? And we answered that whatever it means, we think it has something to do with the church's great commission. And we pointed out that it's exciting to be part of a local church and to take part in a local church, like Good News or Tabernacle. Now I have another question. It's page 13, and it's in the second set of notes on the list of questions. I wish I had done a better job numbering them so I could just point you to a consecutive page without saying which section they'll leave through, but it's, it's on page five in the main section of the notes, and it's question 13, and the question's this. Do miracles happen today? Do miracles happen today? Is God still in the miracle working business? We said that the primary purpose of miracles was to confirm new revelation, and that's already been accomplished with the revelation that's completed in the Bible and between the Bible's two covers with the miracles that historically confirm that revelation as being from heaven. Jesus said, believe me for the very work's sake. So we know that the main reason for miracles has wonderfully been served. But there are other reasons for doing miracles too, like helping hurting people and uh, reminding people of God's power. But are there miracles happening today, do you think? Okay, I hear a yes there. Um, I think of what James 5.15 says, and I think it goes beyond the first century, you know, that the prayer of faith will save the sick and God will raise them up. And uh, I believe that even though I do not believe in faith healers today, I do believe that God can answer the prayers of dear people through faith when he, when he wants to do even a miracle. In his theology book, Augustus Hopkins Strong tells of a revival that was taking place many years ago in Virginia. I think it was in the 1800s, uh, under an evangelist named John Easter. And thousands had gathered in a big open field and they were ready to hear the gospel. And dark, threatening storm clouds approached the meeting, and they looked very threatening and scary. And publicly, John Easter raised his hands and prayed and said, dear God, would you please cause these storm clouds to part so that we may preach the gospel to this great multitude? But because the region needed rain, he said, and Lord, would you allow them to come back afterward and..." water the area. And as the people watched, the storm clouds parted and they went to either side of the meeting and rained cats and dogs. 
when they got past the meeting area, they closed again and continued to rain. And then the next day, the clouds returned and watered the place where the meeting was. Uh, I see that as a wonderful work of God, a miracle, if you will. Um, it's good for us to pray one for another. Our oldest son, Walter, was in language school for the Navy in Monterey, California. And uh, his oldest son, Stephen, was born in May. And uh, Stephen had serious health issues. He was diagnosed uh, in Monterey as having very severe health issues, including a double hemorrhage on the brain. I didn't fully realize this. Somebody may have said something to me, but I didn't fully take it in. But when I was reading the family Christmas letter about seven months later, it was said that the doctors told Walter and Stephanie that uh, Stephen probably would not make it through the night. And when I got the call about the serious health problem, I had a friend in the ministry named Gerald Bridges. He was a very respected pastor in Central North Carolina, and he was known, along with his wife, uh, as a, a couple of prayer. And Brother Bridges said to me, if you need special prayer, he said, you call me anytime and he gave me his number, which was a pretty easy number to remember. And he said, you call me anytime, and I'll intercede for you. And Dr. Pastor Bridges had a way of interceding. It was very special. He would talk about, he would refer to the Lord as the great high priest and talk about coming into the Holy of Holies and, and, uh, and asking him to intercede. And uh, he was a, really a dear man of prayer. Uh, I remember uh, there was a financial thing that came up and I asked him to pray about it. It looked like it was a real problem. And we got a phone call and a solution in 15 minutes after he prayed. Well, it was around 12 o'clock at night or later. I normally wouldn't want to call, but uh, we were confronted with this medical crisis. And so I uh, picked up the phone and I called Pastor Bridges. And after about a ring or two, he answered. He would all say, Bridges here. And um, I shared with him the need and he immediately prayed with me over the phone. I got down on my knees and, and, and he prayed for Stephen. That night they took him by helicopter to a hospital in San Francisco that had a special uh, children's unit and um, we, we, we just committed it to prayer. And um, I got a report the next day that when the doctors examined him in San Francisco, they could find no trace of the double hemorrhage of the brain. Now he had other complications. He was in the hospital for a number of months, finally released. He's 16 now and uh, doing, doing well and is in good health. But uh, I, I feel that God 
used the prayers of Pastor Bridges and others to bring about a medical miracle for Stephen. I remember we were visiting the family down in the Augusta, Georgia area. We were playing some basketball in the, in the driveway. And my son said to me something to the effect of, uh, Stephen is now 13 years old and uh, just about right now, he's come off of all of his medication, which was another very good report. I think he's back on some medication now, but he's still doing, he's still doing well. I, I kind of see that as a modern miracle. I think of missionary John Patton, uh, missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. People were afraid to go there because the inhabitants were cannibals. But John Patton felt led to go there. And I read years ago in a book that shortly after he was there, he was sleeping and he felt a great burden to pray. And he prayed through the night. Uh, I'm not sure to what hour now, it might have been till three or four o'clock. And then he felt peace and he went to sleep. Well, as time went on, he was able to minister to the natives and he was able to win the chief to Christ and eventually the whole tribe followed. God blessed his work greatly and uh, thousands came to Christ uh, from very primitive and uh, cannibalistic backgrounds and uh, their lives were changed. But uh, shortly after the chief of this particular tribe got saved, he said, where did those soldiers come from? And Patton said, what soldiers? And he said, because Patton heard war drums in the distance and, uh, and he prayed and then he felt peace and he stopped praying. Well, the chief said to him, we were having a war party. We were gonna to come to your house and kill you. But when we came to the house, we saw these shining white, mighty soldiers standing guard all around your house and we were filled with fear and we fled. And uh, where did that army come from? And Patton realized that God had sent his angels to protect them and, uh, and uh, God did a great work. A, a sequel to that story is Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolution, did some of his uh, spade work in the South Pacific and helped to develop some of his theories of evolution from observing uh, some of the people in that area. Late in life, Darwin went back to visit in that area and he was overwhelmed by the change in the life of the people. They were civilized, they were Christian, they were, had good manners, they were much better developed. He couldn't believe the change. Darwin was so impressed that he made a contribution to the London Missionary Society. <laughs> I remember, and of course the Bible says, therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. I heard Dr. John Vaughan speaking some years ago and his dear son had died, I believe it was in an automobile accident if I remember correctly. And uh, he needed, you know, so much money to pay the funeral expenses. And uh, he was hurting, of course, his family. 
and the funeral expenses totaled $10,134.84. And uh, three churches sent contributions to help take care of the funeral expenses, and combined they came to that exact amount down to the penny. Uh, I see this as a miracle or God greatly intervening to help his people in a supernatural way. And so I believe God is doing wonders today in people's lives. And of course, that's one reason why it's so important to uh, have prayer meetings. Question. Distinguish between general providence, special providence, and divine miracles. What distinction can we draw between general providence, God working things out in the everyday affairs of life, special providence where God's working but it strikes you as very remarkable, <laughs> and then divine miracles themselves. This is an interesting distinction. If a man or a woman is in bad need of a job, and they pray and uh, they send in resumes and God opens up a really good job for them. Maybe there was a lot of applications for one position, but God opens up a good job for them and they say, thank you. That would be an indication of general providence because people will be applying for jobs and, and jobs will often open. But if you're the person who's in need of a job and you've been searching for a while and nothing's opened, and finances are getting very tight, or you feel you'd love to have a certain position, but there are 40 applications for three openings, and then God works it out so you get that job. That's a wonderful indication of God working through what we would call general providence. I have heard more than one Bible college chapel speaker talk about how he would go to Bible college by faith, didn't have a lot of money, and uh, couldn't continue in school if a certain bill wasn't paid by a certain date. And they go to the mailbox and they open the mailbox and there is the money in the mailbox for the exact amount they owe. Um, and uh, that's uh, pretty neat. I would say that's an example of a special providence where God works in various ways and in people's lives but uh, in a remarkable, stunning way. I um, have a lot of respect for this institution over the years. I am told that it's not where it used to be in the early days. Uh, I do believe it's done a lot of good over the decades. But Dallas Theological Seminary was founded in 1924 and um, by Lewis Burry Schaefer and uh, Griffith Thomas. And like a lot of Bible colleges or seminaries, it was struggling financially. And uh, it so happened that a lot of debts were mounting up. And uh, there was a bank that was about to foreclose on the young seminary on a given morning at 12 noon if they did not have the money. And it was urgent. 
and Lewisbury Schaefer called different board members to gather for a special prayer meeting, and they were in the president's office praying that God would meet that financial need. And as they were praying, it came time for Pastor Harry Ironside to pray. And in his colorful way, Dr. Howard Hendricks tells this story. In, a, in his colorful way, he said, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and we're asking you to sell some of them and send the money to the seminary. Well, as they continued to pray, into the president's secretary's office walked a tall gentleman in a cowboy hat and boots, open collar, and uh, he said, I was uh, down at Fort Worth, Texas, trying to sell a railroad car load of cattle. And he said, uh, I sold it and I wanted to use it for a particular business deal that didn't go through. So I figured I'd give the money to the seminary. He said, I don't know whether you can use it or not, but here it is. And he handed the president's secretary a check. Understanding the seriousness of the hour, she went to the president's door where they were having the, the prayer meeting and she timidly knocked on the door. Dr. Schaefer himself came to answer the door and she handed him the check. And when Dr. Schaefer looked at the check, it was for the exact amount that they owed the bank. And when he looked at it a little more closely, he noticed that on the signature line was the name of a cattleman, he knew. And he went over to Dr. Ironside and he said, Harry, you can stop praying God sold the cattle. <laughs> <laughs> I think of that and I think of Isaiah 65, 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. You know, when Philippians 4, 6 says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I think that one of the things that means is don't always be asking, also thank God with thanksgiving. But I think it means more than that. I think it means that you so trust your father to meet the need that you're thanking him in advance for the thing you're asking him for. And it makes sense that if God answers before we call, Isaiah 65, 24, why not thank him before he answers? Philippians 4, 6. So I think that's kind of neat. Well, I still have trouble believing this, but a dear missionary told me the story. He was a favorite speaker in the early years of Pensacola Christian College, missionary Al Lozano, a real man of faith, a very joyful man. And Brother Al was telling us this story. I, don't, I hope I'm repeating it correctly, but he said, he needed a certain amount of money that he thought he had. He needed a certain amount of money, but he couldn't find it anywhere. And he says he went into some kind of a phone booth and he was calling, trying to explain to the person, you know, I, I, I thought I had this money, I don't know where it is. And he was praying about it and all, and all of a sudden he looked and there it was in his hand. <laughs> I don't quite know where I'm recalling that story exactly. I mean, I've looked for my glasses, I guess, and found them in my pocket or in my hand even, as I get very absent-minded, but I thought that might be an example of even beyond special providence, maybe a miracle. Um, I believe the coin in the fish's mouth was a miracle in Matthew 17. It was 
double the amount of the temple tax. And Jesus said, use that coin that you'll find in the fish's mouth, the first fish that you catch, and pay the temple tax for you and for me. And it was the exact amount that was needed for two people's paying of the temple tax. And, uh, and, and Jesus predicted it, the first fish that would come up, and God directed the fish to swallow that coin that somehow got in the water. And uh, so I believe that's a miracle. Now, would you call this an example of ordinary providence or special providence or a miracle? Corey Ten Boom was in a Nazi prison camp. She saw her sister die there. She probably would have been soon dead. But through a clerical error, she was released and uh, was able to give her testimony and inspire thousands. Uh, God, whether you call it providence or a miracle or something in between, uh, God certainly is alive and active in behalf of his people. And uh, a thousand may fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, even the Most High, thy refuge. Now, I'm going to ask you, I've got to look at myself in the mirror in the morning. It's not a very pleasant sight. But I'm going to ask you to look up here and not at your notes. I'm going to ask you to look up here and not at your notes, okay? might not be too pleasant, but I got to deal with it every day. <laughs> I've told people that one good reason for looking like I do is if you look like I do, at least people will know you're not two-faced. Because if I were two-faced, this certainly wouldn't be the face I'd be wearing. <laughs> I sometimes tell people I'm three times prettier. Pretty ugly, pretty apt to stay that way for a pretty long time. <laughs> but if you'll look up this way for just a moment. How many miracles are in the Bible? That is, miracles that are recorded in detail. How many miracles do we have in the Bible? I ask you to look up because if you, you'll see them in the notes if you don't. How many miracles do you think are in the Bible? What's sir? Yes, sir. Oh, you've already looked, Reggie. Okay. Yeah, okay. Anybody who hasn't looked who wants to guess? <laughs> well, that's one of the well, that's one of the disadvantages of giving printed notes. Um, <laughs> uh, there are about eighty miracles in the Old Testament, and there are about fifty-seven in the New. Next question, number sixteen. Name a few miracles in the Old Testament. Can you think of a few miracles that happened in the Old Testament that come to mind? Parting of the Red Sea. Parting of the Red Sea. That's, that's a big one. Daniel and the Judy? Daniel and the lions. Yes, Daniel and the lions then. Uh, let me comment about the crossing of the Red Sea for just a moment. There was this kid who came home from Sunday school and his dad said, 
what did you learn in Sunday school? And the kids said, uh, well, we learned that Israel was in Egypt. They were being badly treated and they organized this big army and they uh, uh, tried to overthrow the Egyptians and uh, they escaped and they came to the Red Sea and they built this pontoon bridge. And then when the Egyptians chased them, uh, they uh, exploded it with dynamite and all the Egyptians drowned and they escaped. And you're and the father said, they taught you that in Sunday school? And the kid said, well, no, not really, Dad, but if you heard how it really happened, it was just incredible. <laughs> um, but yeah, the crossing of the Red Sea is a, is a great miracle. And what was that one you again said, Judy? Yeah, Daniel and the Lions then. I heard a preacher from Pennsylvania say this. He said, the only reason that the lions didn't eat Daniel is because they could find nothing but backbone, <laughs> uh, but that was a wonderful miracle. Uh, Daniel slept better that night in the lion's den than Darius the Mede slept in his palace that night. There are two great miracles. Uh, can you think of some others? Uh, yes, ma'am, uh, Cassandra? Uh, when Joshua was in the battle, the sun Yeah, the sun's standing still in Joshua 10. That's a great one. And it said uh, there was no day like that day before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, uh, for the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. But even though there was no day like it, before it or after it, I know of a day that's even more remarkable, and that's the day when Jesus saved our souls. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Oh, happy day. Yes, ma'am. The Ten Commandments? Uh, well, I was thinking of miracles, not, 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 Truth. Oh, well, well, the way they were given with the mountain quaking and, and fire, yeah, that was awesome. Hebrews 12 says, so terrible was the sight, so awesome was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly quake and, uh, and uh, fear uh, and tremble. Uh, it, was, it was an awesome scene, that mountain smoldering of smoke, yeah. Any others you can think of? Yeah, the walls of Jericho falling down flat when the people shouted and the trumpets blew. That's, that's an awesome miracle. Uh, by the way, there are three great miracles that stand out in the book of Joshua. One of them is the wall falling down flat. The other is the sun standing still. There's one other that's outstanding. You know what that was? In addition to all the great military victories. Three great miracles in Joshua. Uh, the dividing of the Jordan River at flood tide so they could go over and uh, dry shot. Uh, but uh, can you think of some other miracles? A dot? Three, three Hebrew princes in the fiery furnace. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, no sign of uh, smoke on them. Uh, yes, uh, Jen. The talking donkey. Yeah, the talking donkey, yeah. Um, that is interesting. Uh, in, in, in chapter 22 of Numbers, check this out. In chapter 22 of Numbers, the donkey prophesied and the prophet neighed. <laughs> Have I ever been accustomed to do this to you before? Nay. <laughs> but there was kind of role reversal. The donkey had more spiritual insight than the prophet who is on his mad course to curse Israel no matter what God thought. Yes, sir. How about when the axe head swam? 
Oh, yes. I, 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 uh, the iron did swim, yes, there in, the, in 1 Kings 6. That's an awesome miracle, yeah. And uh, it tells you that sometimes Bible students were uh, not any richer back then than sometimes they are today. Um, they were trying to increase their quarters among the seminary students, you might say. And uh, when the axe head fell in the water, he said, alas, master, it's borrowed. Uh, so, uh, uh, so sometimes Bible students had a challenging time back then, too. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. What's that? Oh yeah, the manna from heaven. That was remarkable, and yet that was day after day too. That was quite a miracle. Uh, well, these are some of the great miracles in the Old Testament that you've picked out. Um, question 17. Name a few of the miracles recorded in the New Testament. What are some of the miracles we find in the New Testament? Might come to mind. Yes, Reggie. Yes, the turning of water into wine at Cain of Galilee in, in um, John 2, 1 to 11. Uh, so I see the other hand. Yes, Judy. Yeah, say, did you say Lazarus? Yeah. Yes, the uh, raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Tremendous miracle. We, we learn in that miracle, well, actually, we learn in chapter 12 of John, that many people lined the streets and came out to see Jesus on Palm Sunday. Not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus, who they had just raised him from the dead. And the, and, the, and, the, and the religious leaders wanted to kill Lazarus just after he rose from the dead because people were coming to Jesus through him, which is interesting. Yeah. The, the, oh, yeah, that's a great miracle. Yes, ma'am. And the others come to mind. Yes, ma'am. The way the veil was rent in two? Yes, I, I wasn't thinking of that actually as a miracle. Uh, in terms of one that a man would perform, but... But the way it was written, too, it wasn't possible. Oh, yes, I agree with you. That is a wonderful miracle. I wasn't thinking of that, but that's a wonderful miracle. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, tells us that they made that veil every year. And it was 60 feet high, and it was four inches thick. And they would test it by attaching horses to it and the horses would be uh, driven either way. And if the veil ripped, it wouldn't qualify to be the temple veil. And yet with an invisible hand, when Christ died, it was ripped in two from the top to the bottom, indicating that the way into the holiest of all is now uh, open to all who will come to God through Christ's sacrifice. Uh, that's an awesome miracle. I wasn't thinking of that, but I'm, I'm glad you uh, brought that up. And uh, that inner veil of the temple was a type or a picture prophecy of Christ's humanity when his body was ripped and torn on the cross. God ripped the veil to indicate that through his death, people now have great access to God. I believe the colors in the veil picture the fourfold Christ of the Gospels. You have purple, the royal color of the king, representing Matthew, Christ is presented as king. You've got red, the color of sacrifice. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord in Mark, who serves to the point of giving his life a ransom for many, the red. White reflects all the colors of the color spectrum, and Jesus was the son of man who was perfectly balanced in all of his attributes and fully sinless. The white indicates purity. And then the blue pictures Christ and John, 
who was from the beginning and came from heaven to earth to reveal God and bring us to God. Uh, so that veil, I believe, was a type of Christ's humanity as recorded in the Gospels. And so you have that interesting reference in Hebrews 10.20, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So a lot of neat stuff here. Um, can you think of another miracle? It was the fish in the net. Yes, the abundance of the fish in the net in, uh, in, Ma in Luke uh, 5, uh, 1 through 13. And uh, one of the interesting things there is, preachers will sometimes point this out, Jesus said, let down the nets for a great catch. But Peter only let down one net, and that was just not nearly adequate for all those fish that, that would be caught. And he says, from henceforth, thou shalt catch men. Uh, that's a good one. Yes, Gene? Virgin birth. Yeah, the virgin birth. I, uh, it's not one of the miracles that was performed during Christ's public ministry, but it was an awesome miracle. Um, that great sign that God gave through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, awesome miracle. Uh, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Uh, yeah, that's a tremendous miracle, Gene. Yes? We uh, walked the water and quieted the seas. Yes, when he walked on the water and he quieted the seas. The Egyptian hieroglyphic for impossibility is a man walking on the water. And uh, we read in Job chapter 9, verse 8, that God alone spreads out the heavens and walks upon the waves of the sea. Uh, only Jesus can do the impossible because of who he is. In fact, impossibility is his speciality. <laughs> and I like what Corey Ten Boone says in regard to John eleven thirty-seven, 37, where they're gathering around the tomb of Lazarus and uh, people lovingly speculate and say, could not this man, if he were here when Lazarus died, could he have not kept him from death? Corey Ten Boone says, Jesus always raises the level of the impossible. He not only could have kept him alive over there, he's about to raise him from the dead, <laughs> uh, which I think is pretty neat. Well, these are good miracles. Yes, but, uh, Pastor. Both the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Yes, sir. Uh, both are very uh, awesome. Maybe one or two more. Resurrection. The resurrection from the dead is awesome. Yes, Micah. I was thinking about Paul bitten by the uh, serpent. Yes, and just shaking it off, yeah. And the people standing around on the Isle of, uh, of uh, Melita and uh, wondering when he would kind of blow up and fall over dead. And, and uh, I think there's some dry humor in Luke's account. Uh, at first they thought that uh, he was being uh, avenged by the gods. Uh, he, he escaped the sea, but now a serpent got him. And then they, when they see him perfectly going on and nothing happening, they change their mind and they say, he's a god. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, there in Acts 28, that's a great miracle. Yes, ma'am. Jesus raising the widow's son. Yes, Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. Uh, the thing among the Jewish rabbis that would cause the greatest of all uncleanness would be touching the dead or the beer of a dead person. And Jesus comes and touches the beer. But instead of contracting uncleanness, 
he's going to impart life. Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he speaks to a corpse, and the corpse arises, and he delivers him to his mother. Wow, that's awesome. There in Luke 7. Can you think of another? Joyce? Yes, I think uh, somebody else mentioned that too, but they are two great miracles. Uh, now, when he got into the boat, the storm ceased when he and Peter got in the boat. It's Matthew chapter 14 that tells us that Peter at that time walked on water too. Um, but you have that other miracle where he was on a pillow asleep and a great storm arose and the disciples woke him in a panic and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he stands and he rebukes the wind and, uh, and commands the sea to be still. And there was a great calm and the people are overwhelmed in the boat. And it says in Matthew 8, 27, that the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Yes, Ryan. Yes, uh, Luke records that in chapter 23, uh, and John tells us that his name was Malchus. Uh, that's a good one, yes, sir. Uh, yes, Bob. Yes, in fact, of all the miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels, the one that I think is recorded the most is Jesus opening blind eyes, if I'm not mistaken. And there are 23 miracles of physical healing by Jesus in the Gospels, more than any other kind. Although there are other great miracles too, like walking on the water and all. Uh, anyone else? Yes, uh, yes ma'am. The healing of the 10 lepers. Yes, the healing of the uh, 10 lepers in Luke 17. And uh, preachers love the Preach on that text, where are the nine? Where are the nine? Has only one returned and a foreigner to give thanks to God for this wonderful event? Uh, so that's a, that's a great preaching text when you're talking about Thanksgiving. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he was fell on his face and gave glory to God. Great miracle. Well, thank you. That gives us a good sample. Yes, sir. The greatest miracle of all of Jesus rising from the dead and going to be with our Father. Yes, the resurrection, the ascension, they're glorious miracles. I heard a Baptist preacher in the Winston-Salem area years ago in talking about the ascension. And he said, all of a sudden, gravity lost its grip, its power, and Jesus ascended. Uh, that's, a, that's a great one, yeah. Uh, well, thank you. That's a very good sampling of the miracles. Um, another question I would have, question number 18. Did Jesus perform any miracles while he was growing up in Nazareth? Did Jesus perform any miracles when he was growing up in Nazareth? I know you could say his sinless life was a miracle, but uh, in terms of acts of power, did he perform any miracles when he was growing up in Nazareth? Yes, Mike. When he turned the water to wine, didn't he say, they say that was the first? Yes, sir, that's, that's what I'm after, yes. Would you please read for us John 2.11? John 2.11.
This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Yes, when he began his official work as the anointed Messiah, uh, then you have the beginning of his miracles in Cana of Galilee, not before. Now, in the second and third centuries of the Christian era, about 50 apocryphal gospels were written, about 50, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Nicodemus. Um, they're not nearly as historically reliable as the four gospels. Early church fathers would say, of all the gospels that were written, we accept only four as being part of the gospel, of the Bible, the canon of the New Testament, and for good reason. Uh, these apocryphal gospels contain some good things, but a lot of it was make-believe and human imagination. And one problem with the apocryphal gospels, the show that uh, they don't deserve a place in the New Testament, and, and some of them were also uh, written within the bosom of heresy. Uh, a lot of them were, were Gnostic. Uh, but one thing that shows a real problem with them is they record all kinds of miracles that Jesus did before his public ministry. Uh, the imagination goes wild. I'd like to read a little bit to you about that. It is left to apocryphal legends. Now, we're not talking about the Jewish apocryphal, which was written between the Old and New Testament. We're talking about the some 50 apocryphal gospels that were written in the second and third century AD. It is left to apocryphal legends, immortalized by the genius of Italian art to tell us how on the way to Egypt, the dragons came and bowed to him. The lions and leopards adored him. The roses of Jericho blossomed wherever his footsteps trod. The palm trees at his command bent down and uh, gave them dates. The robbers were overawed by his majesty and the journey was miraculously shortened. They tell us further how at his entrance into the country, all the idols of the land of Egypt fell from their pedestals with a sudden crash and lay shattered and broken upon their faces. And how many wonderful cures of leprosy and demoniac possession were wrought by his word. We read in Luke 2.40 that the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What a wonderful description of his growing up. And then Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And there are beautiful accounts of his growing up. But the apocryphal gospels put all kinds of miracles into his trip into Egypt and his growing up years in Nazareth. Let me read a little more to you about that. Lions and leopards worshiped him. The infant Jesus says to a palm, bend down and refresh my mother with your fruit. And it does so immediately. At five years of age, Jesus molds 12 sparrows out of soft clay. He claps his hands and the sparrows become alive and fly away. All this is clearly contrary to the pleasing reticence that marks Luke 2.40. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But how different is the boy Christ of the New Testament Apocrypha. He is mischievous, petulant, forward, revengeful, 
Some of the marvels told of him are simply aimless and puerile, as when he carries the split water in his robe, or pulls the short board to the requisite length, or molds sparrows of clay and then clasps his hands, claps his hands to make them fly away, or throws all the cloths into the dryer's vat, and then draws out each stained of the requisite color. But some are, on the contrary, simply distasteful and inconsiderate, as when he vexes and shames and silences those who wish to teach him, or rebukes Joseph, or turns his playmates into kids or little goats. And others are simply cruel and blasphemous, as when he strikes dead with a curse the boys who offend or run against him, until there is a storm of popular indignation. And Mary's afraid to let him leave the house. <laughs> um, so different from the New Testament account. But his first miracle was in Cana of Galilee, as Mike said. Chase Sidler Baxter made a statement some years ago I really like. He said, the scriptures are as wise in their reservations as they are in their revelations. The Bible's not only inspired in what it tells us, but also in what it doesn't tell us. The human imagination puts all kinds of miracles there. I had heard about this man, um, trying to think of his name now, I'd heard about him, Ernest Angley. I had heard about him and I was a boy and I was at our, at our house in Wildwood, New Jersey, maybe when I was around 11 or 12 years old, on the old black and white console TV. And I didn't know, I'd heard the name, I think, Ernest Angsley, but I didn't know too much about him. But all of a sudden, they showed a picture of him coming on. And he said, among other things, if you'll send in so much money, I will send you this recording that I've done. And he says, a lot of scholars have debated for centuries what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, you know, there in 2 Corinthians 12. And he said, God's revealed to me what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And if you'll send in so much money and uh, I'll send you this recording and you can find out what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Well, I believe it was on purpose that God didn't tell us. So whatever our thorn in the flesh is, we can identify with the all-sufficient grace that was Paul's. J. Sidlow Baxter says the scriptures are as wise in their reservations as they are in their revelations. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yes, ma'am, did you have something you were gonna share? Yeah, well. <coughs> Because you asked, did he perform any miracles while he was growing up? Are, are you saying that his first miracle in, Je in John chapter 2? Yes, that's what I'm saying, yes, ma'am. But, but yet it says that he, that he was with his disciples at that time also. So to me, he was already growing. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't word the question too well. Um, he was already at full manhood yeah. when he entered his public ministry, and then he did the miracles. The question was, before he reached manhood, uh, full manhood, when he was growing up in Nazareth, before he was anointed and began his ministry, did he perform a lot of miracles? And the, and the answer would be no, because John 2.11 says the beginning of miracles was in Cana. So, but the apocryphal gospels, which we don't believe are true gospels, they recorded all kinds of miracles that they said he did, but that was just human imagination. That's one reason why we do not accept them as part of the New Testament. Yes, ma'am. 
So, yeah, thank you for helping me clarify that. Yes. Uh, my next question is, how many miracles did Jesus do? How many miracles did he do? Would you help me with some scripture? Um, would somebody read for us? If you would read, uh, I'll call you in a little bit, but if you would read for us uh, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, would you raise your hand? Matthew 4, okay, Kevin, thank you. Uh, Matthew 14, 34 through 36. Who would like to read that? Okay, Mike, thank you. Oh. Okay, great, thank you. Matthew 15, 29 through 31. Okay, Mike, thank you. And Reggie, if you would do Mark 1, 32 through 34. Who would read Matthew, who would read Mark 7, 37 for me? Okay, thanks, Frank. What about John 7, 31? Okay, Jean, thank you. Uh, what about uh, John 15, 24? Okay, thanks, Jan. And what about John 21, 25? Okay, thanks, Dot. Now, I know I have the microphone and you don't, but if you could read as loud, you know, as loud a voice as you can, that would be great. And uh, hopefully our dear friends in the live stream will pick that up some. Uh, first of all, Matthew 4, 23 through 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went about throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Thank you. Would somebody read uh, chapter 14, 34 through 36? And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. I love that phrase. Thank you. Perfectly whole. Um, chapter 15 of Matthew 29 through 31. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into the mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Thank you. Mark 1, 32 through 34. Sun did set. They brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. All the city was gathered at the door. I like that. Thank you. Uh, here's a beautiful verse. Chapter 7, verse 37 of Mark. Now, I know it's in the context of a miracle, 
But I believe when you and I are on heaven's shore and we look back, we're gonna say what the multitude said, he hath done all things well. Let's have Mark 737 read, please. And were beyond measure astonished, saying, he hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Thank you. John 731. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Thank you. And then John 15, 24. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Thank you. And then Dot, chapter 21, 25. Many people will say this is hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. I'm not all that sure it's hyperbole. But if you'd read chapter 21, 25 of John. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Thank you. I picked out these passages for you to read because I wanted you to get a good sense of the magnitude of his miracles in the midst of multitudes, not to mention the many miracles he wrought in less public and more private settings. I mean, you have summary statements where they'll bring all kinds of sick people in the midst of crowds of thousands of people. And he heals them every one and they're made perfectly whole. So the answer we're looking for to this question is, how many miracles did Jesus do? Thousands, thousands. I wanted you to think along those lines because we talk about the miracles we're familiar with that are recorded in detail and they're zoom lensed in and they're specified in the gospels like the raising of Lazarus from dead, the walking on water, and they're great studies. But please understand that Jesus did thousands of miracles. And um, as John 20, 30 tells us, in the presence of his disciples, these are well documented, these are well supported. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. And then this last question, how many of Jesus's many, many miracles are recorded in detail in the four gospels? And I kind of have the answer down there, I wish I didn't, uh, but about 35. Uh, some miracles are repeated more than once, like the miracle of uh, stilling the storm. Uh, some miracles are given only once, like healing the high, servant's, uh, uh, high priest's servant's ear. But if you count up the number of different miracles that are recorded at least one time, some are recorded more, you come up with about 35 miracles in the four gospels and they're, they're, they're a great study. <laughs> Any questions or comments about what we tried to cover tonight? Next week, I will, Lord willing, begin with the question, and this is another problem, because I wanted you to have the notes, but uh, which gospel records the most miracles? We'll, we'll talk about that next week. I have a little more uh, I wanna say besides the actual statistic there. But um, we'll start with that. Which gospel um, 
gives the most miracles. And the interesting thing, it's the shortest of the Gospels, but it has the most miracles recorded. And uh, we'll talk about why that might be significant. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.